It's the same old story. It's been a long day at the job, or maybe it's just starting to feel long, and you feel that urge to stretch your legs and get a little bit of a break. You walk down the street, or maybe you get behind the wheel of your car, and you feel the weight begin to lift. You walk through the doors, and the sound of the place starts to clear the air. You get a table, you order your drink, you listen to the sounds of the bar, and soak in the conversation. Welcome to the TNE Speakeasy with your hosts, Caleb and Eric. Listen in as they discuss a variety of topics, such as 80s movies, Dune, Von Henchman, and more. So, I I didn't know this until I watched the movie. I didn't know, like in the 1800s, cats are not considered house pets or something you should keep as a house pet. Um, oh, I didn't know that was a thing. And and the fact that they are considered house pets now, this was largely started by Lewis Wayne and and, and things that he did and things he was known for. Um, so he started doing all these cat drawings because of reasons in the movie and in his life and that became his thing and and man he did cat pictures from in particular from the mid 1880s until he passed in uh 1939 and also weirdly because i think i was talking to you about this last week he was born and died almost exactly the same date or like year years as um the fictional uh Kane. Uh was it Thomas Kane? Or from no, Citizen I'm not Kane. Sure. From Citizen Kane. Oh, Charles Foster. Charles Foster Kane. I just thought that was a weird coincidence that this real person was born and died almost the exact same years as the fictional uh Kane. Um and and man, when we when you like Google his art or there's a lot of, there's some sections of the movie where they just show a bunch of his art. It's amazing. Like, yeah, I'm looking at some of it now. And and I had seen some of those images before, but I had no idea that they were done by some famous artist back in the day. And this guy had a very troubled life. He had, um, aside from having like social awkwardness, uh, he perhaps. Well, he had a lot of mental health issues. He perhaps had schizophrenia, but no one knows for sure because of, you know, they weren't they weren't so good at diagnosing things back then. So people aren't sure if he had schizophrenia or maybe he was just on the spectrum and just had issues, like um, you know, being mm-hmm. in, in the world. But no one really knows for sure. Um, and even though he was this famous artist and very popular at the time he had no business sense so he never profited properly from his art so this guy was always suffering financially throughout his entire life and died pretty destitute um oh man that's that's so sad to hear for people (laughs) yeah and when you watch if you ever watch this movie it's 
it just comes across as a very straightforward, basic movie. But as you get deeper into his life story, it's like, oh my god, you know, I unexpectedly had feelings and emotions because of what transpires. Um, and so, I, there was a reason I brought this up right now. Oh, that's that's the only significant thing that I've seen since uh, last we spoke. And I just stumbled into it, not expecting anything. And I was like, oh wow, mm. now I have thoughts after seeing that. Yeah, I've actually seen the trailer for this anytime I watch Smallville on Amazon Prime, because since they give ads in between episodes, which I think is actually kind of ridiculous for Amazon Prime. It's like I'm paying for this service, and you're still forcing me to watch these ads. But <laughs> They do it a lot. It bothers me. Um, Apple TV does it a lot. It bothers oh, wow. me. Um, but I have to say, as much as it bothers me, Every now and then, they do recommend something that I do go check out. So, hmm. you know, so what can a person say about that? If it, someone, oh, and Paramount Plus, they do it as well. Except with them, with them, it's always the same thing, or at least at least what they're showing me, which is here's the trailer for the, the newest Star Trek thing coming out. Um, <laughs> Whereas the other ones, they change it up more, like with what random thing they're trying to sell to me. Oh, well, yesterday I went to go see uh, Ghostbusters Afterlife. Oh, you can tell me a little bit about it without saying anything spoilery. Um, I like the new cast. I thought they all worked, but the movie, it feels like it feels like a blander version of like The Force Awakens, where it's just kind of like that typical soft reboot type story mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and by the end i was just kind of like ah it's this feels just like an empty hollywood picture again so that was too bad i, I was enjoying it quite a bit up until one very particular scene and then from then on the movie just yeah just completely was ruined i thought but mm -hmm. i guess i'll be curious to talk about with you more i don't tonight. i don't know what camp i'll fall into when i eventually watch this movie if I'm just going to be like, hey, it was cool, it was, it was, you know, I, I'm not expecting much, I was glad with what I got, or would I have more of a, like, similar to what you just said? I don't, I honestly don't know, based on little things I've heard from other people. I don't know where, where I'll land. Because, mm. again, you're complicated, you're complicated because when, because there's some movies that, newer movies that you don't like, that I really like, <laughs> or I think are just quite enjoyable. So, so therefore, I, I can't tell um, based on your opinion alone. Yeah, and I, I also have no real connection to Ghostbusters. I mean, I saw the first two numerous times as a kid, but they were, I never loved them any more than like, like any other kind of comedy flick. I always thought the first movie was cooler because it had that cool concept, but I never thought it was particularly funny, and the second movie I always thought was kind of lame. So I... It was never a franchise I cared much for. No one ever talked about the second one. However, if you're an American kid, the cartoon version, the real Ghostbusters, that was kind of popular for a while uh, in the late mm. 80s. Um, yeah, I, I missed that completely. I only saw the... Uh, the other Ghostbusters? Whatever that other one was. Yeah, the 2000s one. The it was based... It was The cartoon was a reboot of a cartoon which was based upon a live-action show in the mid 60s oh no no yeah not that one the uh what was it called 
It was like the one where Egon was the leader of like a multicultural kind of Ghostbusters team, and oh. the old crew was out. I f- I forget what that one was called. Maybe that was later seasons of the real Ghostbusters. I don't know. Yeah, I'm curious. I'm gonna look it up. Yeah, because it, it, yeah, it was not good. I've seen I've seen the episodes of the original Ghostbusters uh, animated show on the Blu-rays, but I haven't seen anything else. That's weird. That's on Blu-ray. But you bring up another weird point when I think back to the 80s, which is, okay, I remember all those popular marquee movies of that decade, like from when I was a kid. And at the time, they all seemed equally good. Like Goonies, Gremlins, Ghostbusters, Beverly Hills Cop. Um, Mm. There's many more, Uh, many, many more. Star Trek 2, I don't know. Um, Star Trek 4, Star Trek 3, uh, Superman 3. Um, what are the movies that everybody's... Yes. Lethal Weapon. Lethal Weapon, that was a little bit later, but yeah. Um, Beyond the Thunderdome. Um, shit, all those movies that were mega, mega popular in the 80s. Um, blockbustery type movies. Um, so, oh, Back to the Future, of course. Um... All those movies at the time, as for me as a kid, all seemed equally amazing. Um, and you could play any one of them anytime and I'd be into it. Uh, the Karate Kid 1, Karate Kid 2, um, uh, E.T., Raiders of the Lost Ark, Temple of Doom, mm-hmm. all that stuff. Um, everything was amazing. And then when you get like a lot older... And I don't even mean 20s, but I mean way past that. And then you look back at all of them, and then there's an obvious ranking that starts to happen. Where it's like, whoa. Mm-hmm. Especially if you go back and rewatch Well, of course, I've rewatched them all many times. But then all of a sudden, oh, these ones are really good or still good. And, but then these other ones, eh, they're not bad. They're not bad. Just not. And no, it's just weird. It's just weird how it filters over time. Where is it? At? <laughs> and Ghostbusters was definitely one of those movies that was one of those seemingly perfect movies in the 80s. Like, all those movies I named, they they seemed perfect back then. And not just by me, kind of by everybody. I mean, adults at the time as well. Because at least adults who are into mainstream film. Because all those movies, I just never ending story. They seemed like... Hmm. They had amazing special effects for the time, and 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 like I don't know, they just all seemed like they were the best that film could offer. Um, and Return of the Jedi. Oh yeah, of course. Even with that terrible, uh, <laughs> a couple terrible sequences with special effects. No, everything just seemed as good as it can be um, for all those movies. Mm. Yeah, now it's very easy. It's yeah, some things don't look so great anymore, but you didn't notice and. Ghostbusters was just like, hey man, you can't do any better than that. I mean, the special effects throughout the movie. Mm. And of those movies I named, the ones that had humor in them, that they, all those jokes seemed funny <laughs> in all those movies. Ghostbusters was definitely, I thought, one of the funniest movies, yeah, back then. Even yeah. if I didn't even understand all the jokes as a kid, you still laugh anyway. Oh, by the way, that show I watched was called Extreme Ghostbusters. Yeah, I remember not 
thinking it was very well animated, or I didn't care for the characters either. So was it like a like a later spinoff or iteration of the original cartoon? Is what I'm guessing. Yeah, it came out in '97. Oh, yeah. oh, I didn't. Okay, didn't realize. I I was busy in '97. I mean, because there was times when I knew what kid shows were out there, but '97 is not one of those years where I knew because I was busy doing other stuff. Oh, and uh, by watching on the Blu-rays, I meant uh, Double Bill Blu-ray book that they put out. Mm-hmm. Came with, I think, three episodes of the animated series. And they were pretty cool. I, I remember they were kind of like little Lovecraftian-esque. Mm-hmm. So I remember enjoying those, but those are the only examples of the old Ghostbusters show that I've seen. But by no con- connection, I mean like when the remake came out, everyone was all pissed off. How can you do this to Ghostbusters? I was kind of like, yeah. I mean, as a franchise, Ghostbusters isn't really all that great. So, I mean, who really cares if they do a shitty right. remake? They've already got a shitty sequel. Right. So for this one too, it kind of like calls on nostalgia a lot, and I just don't have any nostalgia for Ghostbusters really. So I was kind of like, oh, right. I, 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 I like the new characters, but I don't care about the franchise. So, so maybe maybe you'll have a different feeling if you feel more of an attachment to it. Yeah. I don't know. That's the other thing. I think that's the other thing that makes the 80s significant like that. Or I guess the same things I'm saying about the 80s would apply to the 70s if I was of that generation. I mean, if I, if I was of that age. It's, I think, it's everything that happened. Well, no, that was right when it happened in the 80s. Because our weird fascination with those movies of that time have to do with videos and VHS becoming a thing. Um... And in the 70s, it was the same thing, except it wasn't video, obviously. It was just going to um, re-releases of popular movies. But, but that served the same function as what the VHS tape did in the 80s for us. And even though it was the first time you could reliably, reliably watch entire movies whenever you wanted at home, it still wasn't the same as streaming because it was still very restrictive. Because mm-hmm. there was only so many things you could rent... And you know, at, at first, they were prohibitively expensive. So mm-hmm. only rich people like actually had like a, a vast home library initially. Um, so it wasn't like you could just get... It's not like streaming where everything's at your fingertips. There were still limitations on how many you could acquire or view in a certain amount of time. Um, and I think we talked... And even though you could rent things... Um, if it was something popular like Ghostbusters, it could still be really hard. Like, you might have to be checking for three weeks until someone returns a copy that you can borrow. You know what I mean? So you, so it still wasn't on demand. Um, even though you could technically rent it. Definitely don't live in those days anymore. Everything just a couple types away, and there it is. <laughs> right. It's, yeah, I don't know. Um, I was going to say something else right now. Um, oh yeah, so you know I got all these damn things I bought on sale recently. Um, yep. And I hate getting overwhelmed with another small mountain that just like falls on top of me. When I already have other things I haven't watched yet that I own in physical release, and then I just dump a whole bunch of, onto my stack. It's <laughs> it's too much at once. Um, but I started looking at those lord of the rings well fellowship i looked at some of the discs and uh and the first hobbit 
so worth it if you're a fan of that stuff. Mm. But I mean to get on 4K is what I really mean. So worth mm-hmm. it. So worth it. They they look so fresh. And even though The Hobbit looks newer, obviously, and Lord of the Rings looks more celluloid, regardless of your preference, digital versus celluloid, they, they're just they're all better. Um, um, mm. With either set. God, they just... It's like, I don't know how to explain it. It's like, it's like it's been re-infused with new life. Um, even the newer ones, in a way, compared to regular Blu-ray. And then... Um, I was looking at... Uh, what is it called? Arrival. And yeah, of course, it looks as perfect as you'd expect it to look. Um, you will not be disappointed like in the clarity and whatnot. However, I will say, because the movie is so muted in, in like, you know, just the way, it, the way it was produced, the way it looks, because it's so muted anyway, you're not going to get much out of your HDR, if you know what I mean. So, mm. so the movie's not going to pop, so to speak. But... yeah. As far as clarity and precision and all that kind of stuff, oh yeah, top marks across the board. You won't be disappointed in that way. Um, and Mulholland Drive is a little bit weird or interesting. I mean, judging it in 4K because I have two different monitors or screens that can do HDR, but one of mine is Dolby Vision capable and the other one isn't. It's regular HDR10. And with some discs, uh, Dolby Vision makes a noticeable difference and sometimes it doesn't, it makes a marginal difference, but it's just different case by case. So I started watching Mulholland Drive because I was really looking forward to it. Like, what is this movie gonna look like? You know, Criterion 4K. Yeah, I already watched Citizen Kane, but this is a newer movie, you know? So I was like, in color, I was like, what is it gonna look like? So I put it in, and I watched it on my non-Dolby Vision screen. And frankly, I was like kind of disappointed, because it looked like I just put in a Criterion Blu-ray. Like, yeah, it looks good, but I can't tell it's 4K. It just looks like a good Criterion Blu-ray. So I was kind of like, man, is it just this movie just doesn't look that good? Or it just can't look that much better? So I was kind of actually disappointed. Because I was expecting more upgrade. But then later, I put it on my other television, the one that does Dolby Vision, and that made a difference. It's hard to quantify because only a movie buff would notice. A regular person wouldn't probably notice the difference. But the colors just popped a little bit more with the Dolby Vision. And, and then I said, oh, you know what? Oh, now I can tell. This looks fresher. Like, this doesn't look like a regular Blu-ray anymore. So then the okay. thing is, that kind of sucks because, like, I don't know if you have Dolby Vision or not. I don't know if Sean does or not. But most people don't. Some people, you know, it just depends what you happen to buy. But most people don't have Dolby Vision capability. So it sucks to me that someone in that camp would buy that same disc I bought and just might think, eh doesn't look that much different and i think that just kind of sucks because actually it does look different with dolby vision but yeah i'm just trying to remember because um 
whenever I watch The Mandalorian, it says switching to Dolby Vision, but I'm not sure if that... I guess that means that it has that, right? Okay, that's a complicated example you just brought up. So, yeah, that's... So, no, for, for multiple reasons. So, the way my Disney Plus functions, um, I don't know if yours is the same or it's the same internationally, but I have many different streaming devices and many different types of screens. Um, and... Like, I have Roku's, I have Fire TV's, you know, I have my PS5 and my Xbox, and, and, and so these things don't all function exactly the same, but because I have all these different ones, I can kind of test and see how things are, um, and at least with Disney Plus specifically, Disney Plus, it will always show me the film format or video format that my current devices are capable of. So if I'm using like a regular 1080p screen with a basic Roku, it'll tell me Mandalorian is available in HD. If I do it on my screen that only does regular HDR, it'll say available in HDR, HDR 10. If I use my Dolby Vision capable stuff, it'll say available in Dolby Vision. So it adapts to whatever I'm on and that's what it tells me. But that's only the first reason why this is complicated that you brought this example up because famously when the series first came out on disney plus because i saw ooh, i was like because disney plus was a brand new service obviously and i was like ooh, they have dolby vision because at the time only netflix really of streaming services only netflix had vision capability so i was like ooh, like disney's like you know pulling out all the stops um because they have it too um, Dolby Vision, um, and so I was kind of excited, and I was like, "Wow, you know, they must be putting everything into this show because it's Dolby Vision." But when I started reading articles about the show from a technical point of view, um, uh, what do you call it? Um, um, home theater buffs were saying that it's artificial. It's artificial that that Mandalorian wasn't really produced in Dolby Vision, um, that Disney is doing some kind of cheating process where they're, like, making faux Dolby Vision or something. Um, so I read a lot of articles arguing that this is fake. Like, it's fake. It's fake HDR, fake HDR. Like, it's just tricking your machine and applying, like, a fake HDR filter or whatever you want to call it. Or mm. a codec or whatever. And so I was like, okay, and maybe that's true. That being said, though, it, it looked better. So I was like, my personal opinion was, even if this is fake Dolby Vision, it still looks cool. Um, even if it's not necessarily the real thing. So you just picked a very controversial example. <laughs> yeah, and I more mean, anytime I click on The Mandalorian, a little bubble will pop up in the corner of my screen that says uh, Dolby Vision. Yeah. It's like usually if I click on something like HDR, it'll say that, or if it's not, or it'll switch to game mode too for like the 4K games. So, yeah, so that, that's my only example of why I would think it has that, but I'm not, yeah. I don't know. Well, it does. <laughs> it's just some people argue that, it, like I said, it's a fake one. Um, yeah, I don't know if I have any 4K discs that have Dolby Vision. At least I don't recall playing any, but I don't have them in my podcast room here, so I. I wouldn't know, but... And we've talked about the volume before, right? Uh, and you saw, like, the piece about it. And 
did it did it come up when we were discussing Dune together, me, you, and Carl? Like, did, did someone mention the? Did I mention the volume for a hot second? I don't. I feel like it it came up, but yeah, I, I can't remember the details. Because I had, because I might be remembering from a different conversation I had with other people. But at some point, I had said to somebody, <laughs> like, um, like I wonder if they had something like the volume or. You know, was that something they could... Like, I don't know. Like, as far as putting together certain shots and things in that movie. Like, I don't know. Um, but I, I just had pondered about it. And then... I don't know if I was watching a YouTube video or what. But this person was explaining that. I had no idea, but... I don't know if it was the second unit director or this... No, it couldn't have been the cinematographer. But somebody who worked on Dune behind the camera also worked on Mandalorian, the series behind the camera. And so mm. they were saying that this person had previously worked on a Mandalorian, so they were familiar with the volume and everything about it, and they said that supposedly they tried to use the volume or technology, the same, like they tried to use volume technology to do Dune, but they said that like, because Arrakis is supposed to be so bright and so sun-drenched that they couldn't get... The, LED, the LEDs of the volume weren't strong enough um, to, to make the bright light that they really wanted. So they had to like come up with, an, uh, with other ideas. So I, I was just surprised that they actually did try to use the volume and just didn't work out. Um, yeah, that is interesting. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, they could have used it in that scene when we first see the sandworm, because... That's one of my big complaints with that movie is I, I always thought that scene looked terrible in the trailer because it was so dark and washed out, and I was shocked that it looked that same way in the movie. Mm, it looks good uh, on HBO Max, or I was gonna say on the disc. I don't have the disc, <laughs> but on HBO Max, it's streamed in 4K um, uh, HDR and all that stuff. Might be Vision. I can't remember if HBO Max uh, does that. Yeah, I didn't see it in. Uh... I didn't see it in IMAX, but I saw it twice in the theater, and both times that scene looked so washed out and just like the color was just completely, just completely sapped away. But... It looked fine to me the movies, but it's hard to say with IMAX because it's so damn big and like your your senses are so blown out that it's sometimes it's hard to know <laughs> like what's what until you see That's it at fair. home. Um, and this is unrelated but related. I, I keep meaning to like post this picture like on the on the best picture group page on Facebook or just send it to you guys individually. But I was watching something that was talking about the special effects in Dune 84. Mm -hmm. And there's this one particular shot in the movie. It's early in the movie, but there's this one particular shot. And I want to share that image and ask people, how do you think this shot was achieved? This special effect shot? How do you think they made this shot? But the thing that makes it so difficult when guessing is I can say up front, um, it was all done in camera, nothing was done in post, and if you see the image I'm talking about, the first place your mind might go is matte painting. And that is that would be incorrect, if that's what your hmm. guess would be. And if so if you're looking at this image, and you're trying to figure out how it was done in camera and you take matte painting off the table, it's really hard, I think. And I had no idea because when you watch it, I've obviously seen the scene a million times, 
I always automatically assumed it was a matte painting. Because that's how you would think is the most obvious way to achieve this visual. And when I found out it wasn't a matte, and then I found out how they did it. Unbelievable. Un-fucking-believable. But I'll have to show you the image. Cause and did you say which film it was? Dune 84. Oh, 84. Oh, okay. Dune 84. Um, and I... Once I learned how they actually made the shot, I, I am I am humbled. <laughs> it's one of the most insane things I've ever heard of uh, on how to achieve like a, a really grandiose special effects shot. Um, but like I said, all my words mean nothing to you without knowing what the image yeah. looks like. Um, I'll see if I can try to... I don't know if I can pull it up real quick. I'm trying to think how I Google it. Um, yeah, and I guess I'll briefly, because there was a couple movies I wanted to mention to you that I, because like I said, I've been going through this Criterion list that I made. Sure. Yeah, so I watched two French films, uh, kind of animated. One of them was A Town Called Panic. You heard of that one? No, that's an interesting title. Yeah, it's like a kind of stop motion, but I guess, yeah, stop motion, but with like toys and pretty fun, kind of absurdist little French uh, comedy film. Then I watched another one called Fantastic Planet. I'm sure you've at least... Uh, I, I'm very aware of it, but I've never actually watched it in full. Oh, I, yeah, I, I absolutely love that one. So I'm, I'm, I'm actually, after watching that, I'm putting together a little animation um, series. So I might get you on for that if you're interested, but... I'm always interested, but yeah, it's, it's, it's being heavily advertised, I want to say, maybe on Amazon Prime right now. Oh, one one of the streaming services is like heavily heavily advertising that particular movie. Yeah, I'd... Amazon Prime has like a surprisingly deep catalog of uh, what do you call it? Um, like cultish films, like from the seventies and stuff. Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, I'm sure we have different ones with the Canadian versus American one, but yeah, huge, much bigger selection than like Netflix or. Uh some of the other random ones we've got here um what else okay i found an example of the shot i was talking about wow like when i'm looking at it now just wow like, holy shit this is in motherfucking camera <laughs> it's insane um it is it's such an insane shot you just wouldn't think it was done like that because it looks too ambitious. Oh, I'm curious to see it. Okay, I sent it to you, and when you see it, there's a little like green smudge. Just completely ignore and pretend like that doesn't exist in the image. I don't know what that's about. Oh yeah, I, I think I remember this shot, but did that in camera. And you said it's not a matte painting. This is in camera, and let me tell you what else makes it crazy. Um, okay, if you look, if you focus on like the what do you call it? The steps, like, where you enter or exit the ship? Mm-hmm. And at the bottom of the steps, there's some people standing there, right? Yep. So those are the actors in real life in camera. And again, this entire shot is in camera. So not, not composite shots. And there is no matte painting. No matte painting. But they're not compositing the the bottom and the top of the frame. 
It's all in, in camera, one one shot. This is all in camera. Nothing is done in post. Wow, I don't know. Yeah, I'm very curious. And those are the real people. Those are the real people standing there at the bottom of the stairs. I'm trying to look for lines for forced perspective, but I don't see where the... I'm, I'm very curious now how they would have done this. And the huge shadow there, too. Oh, I know. You're right. The huge shadow. You're very right. <laughs> it's what the fuck. That's very And so then first I heard it explained, and that was already mind-blowing. And then I saw an image of, like, behind the scenes of showing, and I was like, that was even, like, just added, that just added more to, to the explanation of how crazy it is. Oh, man. Now, yeah, now I'm very curious. <laughs> guess we gotta do that someday. So I was gonna post this, like, <laughs> online. Like, can anyone guess how this was done in camera in real time, no matte painting. <laughs> yeah, and you got this on 4K as well, right? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, how how that? I'm sure it looked great, but it's not perfect. At least some of it. But by and large, it, it's fantastic. It's fant It's not because have you seen Blade Runner on 4K? Nope. The original Blade Runner, obviously. So the original Blade Runner, obviously, it's 82 or whatever on 4K disc or streaming. It's immaculate. There's no hmm. dust. There's no scratches. It looks like it was made yesterday. See, this is not that. <laughs> so this has scratches here and there. It has little imperfections, but nothing over the top. Um, it's like me saying, like when we saw Deep Red, that was pretty immaculate, but it wasn't perfect. Um, hmm. You know, so that's how Dune looks. Like it's, 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 and it's definitely as good as it's ever looked. And it definitely pops. I mean, it's definitely it, there's more life than than the Blu-ray version. Let's not even talk about the DVD version, which I own, of course. Um, it's the only one I own. Unfortunately, the, the the DVD version is the only way you could get the uh, the extended cut. So. Oh, interesting! Wow, I'm surprised Arrow didn't include that. Uh, it was. I read it was perhaps because um, because. Uh, um, David Lynch completely disowns that cut because he had nothing to do with it. Mm. I, 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 yeah, I guess that's understandable, but he should disown the original but one it, too. But it, <laughs> but it adds so much context. It adds so much context to the overall story and movie. Still, never seen that version. And there's like whole scenes from the book that are in the long cut that are completely cut out of the, the um, David Lynch mm. version. Yeah, whenever we do it on the podcast, I'll <laughs> I'll watch both cuts, but. I'll have to be forced at podcast point. So, <laughs> right. But yeah, man. Just think about that shot I just sent you. It's it's it's, it's insane, and it's insane to me. And, and it happens in other movies, other productions. It's insane that this is a this movie is a movie. You know, considered a box office disappointment. You know, mm -hmm. and you know it's it's no Star Wars as far as reputation or anything, yet. They did so much for this shot that lasts like five seconds in the movie, and it just—I just can't believe they did so much. And it's like, who cares? You know what I mean? Yeah, and I mean, I, I've listened to interviews with Frank Herbert and David Lynch at the time. They were convinced it was going to be a giant hit, and they had, Lynch was already working on the scripts for two and three, and yeah. So the, I guess the studio was convinced it was going to be a hit too. But yeah, no, no. <laughs> and I'm just like. It's kind of sad to think what would have happened if it kept going. I mean, would have been curious to see, but 
this this shot, you know, like I said, it lasts all of ten seconds of the movie. And I'm serious, they must have literally spent weeks and weeks in preparation for this one shot to put it all together. Weeks and weeks of planning and doing certain things and setting it up just for like 10 seconds in a movie that nobody cares about. That's just insanity. Yeah, that is, that is crazy, especially because most people would think it was a map painting. Hell yeah! Why wouldn't it be? I mean, it makes sense. For the day and everything. Or at least a composite shot where the top part would be one frame and the second part would be another frame just cut together. That's what I would exactly. immediately assume. That's what but. they did in the Star Wars movies and, and Indiana Jones and all that other stuff for things like this. No, sir. Mm-hmm. That would be incorrect. That would be wow. incorrect. That's, that's, so cr- <laughs> that's crazy. <laughs> oh, but just, just before we jump into this, this the real main course here. Yeah, so I also watched Robin... Robin Fuck, this is a hard name for me to say right now. Robinson Crusoe on Mars, which I'd wanted to see ever since I was like a kid. I'd heard about this movie, and it just it didn't live up to my excitement for it. So that was kind of lame, lame experience. But uh, why why were you anticipating it so much since since you were young? Um, I, I don't remember how I initially. It may have been on TCM. I had just seen like a promo for it, and I saw that it had Adam West, and it just looked like this like amazingly opulent kind of um sci-fi story and so i had i'd always like built up my mind that it was going to be like you know like on the planet of the apes except more pretty looking and it just it, it wasn't that great it had a really great like first hour but then the last maybe 50 minutes just super slowed down and it turned kind of dull so so i was pretty sad by that but then i watched a face in the crowd have you heard of that film no Oh, it, it stars Andy Griffith. It's this kind of um, like a rags to riches story, but it goes super duper dark and kind of depressing. And it's all about uh, like the radio and TV industry. Super cool flick. It's from the same guy who made that uh, Panic in the Streets that I watched also on this list. But the last one that I watched last night was Superfly. Why? And that... Well, when I when I made this big Criterion list, it was just I went through everything on the Criterion. Oh, channel. it was part of your Criterion list. That's what I was yeah. trying to figure out right now, because I saw because I was googling Robinson Crusoe on Mars, and this this Criterion cover came up, and I wasn't sure if it was a fake cover or not. So I, I was trying to figure that out right now. So you're telling me it's real? Yep, yep. That's crazy. It's a pretty cool cover. <laughs> <laughs> I wow, I wasn't expecting this to be a Criterion release. Yeah, and, and after I watched it, I was kind of like, it, it is almost a little surprising that it was a Criterion release, but, and it was an early one, too. They've had it on disc for probably almost a decade now. I also didn't, I don't think of those as early ones. <laughs> I think the ones from the early 2000s or late 90s, but, um, well, during the DVD yeah, days. <laughs> um, but, and then I didn't, I guess I didn't know there was a Superfly Criterion release either. I don't know if that ever got a disc, but it's on the Criterion channel. Mm. So. Okay, that's different because, okay, because yeah, because some stuff is just licensed to the channel. It's not actually, yeah, okay. Yeah, like I, I don't think uh, Town Called Panic <laughs> would get a Criterion <laughs> disc. I mean, maybe it would. Or okay, I see. Okay, this for the service. Um, well, that's interesting. I've never seen the movie. Oh, and... go ahead. Uh, you, you can go ahead first. I'll, I just had one little tidbit about Superfly I wanted to mention oh. before I move on. But I'd never seen Robinson Crusoe on Mars. I'd seen like little clips, little pictures, and 
I must have read a kid's version of Robinson Crusoe, the novel, when I was in elementary school. Uh, it was like a simplified kid's version, and I thought that was like a really interesting story and a really cool concept. Um, and I always wanted to watch, I knew there was different iterations of Robinson Crusoe movies and things like that. And I don't know, I always wanted to watch them, but I just, it just, I never really got around to seeing any of them in full. And like I said, I was a bit aware of this one too, but it just never happened. Yeah, I, I, I don't know what my, ex- I feel like I also read something like that when I was a little kid. Like maybe like a kid's, like maybe an- not animated, but uh, illustrated version of the story. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah, that's what I read. Something like that. And then, of course, I have always loved Castaway, even though I've only watched it once or twice in full length. Um, I just mm. freaking love that movie. But anyway. Yeah, no, that, that really is a good movie again. But same thing. I've only seen it like twice as well. But <laughs> Oh, boy, Superfly. Um, one of the, the kind of central characters in it was played by the same guy who played Teehee in uh, Live and Let Live. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the, uh, the henchman with the claw. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he, and he gave a, a pretty solid performance, and I was like, oh, man, like, if only that character would have had more going on to it, this actor could have really given us a great henchman, like... And then I started thinking about, like, Batista and Spectre, mm-hmm. or um, uh, Benicio Del Toro and License to Kill, and it's like, oh, some of these, these actors could have given us really memorable little henchman characters, and they've just kind of been forgotten. I now. thought the... I thought the James Bond Jaws character was just fucking amazing when I was a kid. <laughs> I really did. I don't even know why, but like, who cares? Big person with like these metal teeth, but like that was so cool. Oh, especially the shots when he's standing next to Roger Moore and picks him up. He's just like towering this huge image. Yeah, maybe not a lot of charisma, but just the the screen presence carried him. But yeah, someone like T. So forgettable. Yeah, yeah, no, kind of, yeah. Except, except of how it's unintentionally funny. Um, yeah, <laughs> but I was watching. Was that Skyfall um, with Batista? Oh, Spectre. Uh, it was Spectre. Oh, yeah, Spectre. Yeah, that's right. Because I was watching Spectre recently. Cause I had, to, I had, I'd only watched it like once all the way through, and that was like at the movies. Um, so I was watching it. Uh, like three, four weeks ago, and when he came into the movie, I co- I had forgotten so much about that movie. I had completely forgotten he was even in it, and but it was a delight. Uh, like once I remembered you know, all that. Yeah, it's it's fun to see him, but I, I still wish they would have given him more. Like it's such a long movie. I feel like they could have spent some screen time instead of on kind of the silliness of the plot and giving us a more interesting henchman character. But because some of those ones really do pop. Like, um, oh, what's a good one that popped a lot? Damn. I was going to say, uh, Famke Jensen. Jansen, however you say her name. Oh, Famke Jensen? She pops as, uh, on a top. Yeah, on a top. Oh my god, she was, just as an actress in general, she was just something. Uh, she was a specimen of the 90s. I mean, she still looked great in the 2000s, don't get me wrong. But the (laughs) 90s was like her peak decade. And she she was just a f- yeah, and she was a great henchman. She was super memorable. And even though I liked her at the time when that movie was fresh, I still didn't fully appreciate her until I was watching that movie ten fifteen years later. 
and then I had like a new respect for her as a specimen. She was always a cool character, but she was a specimen. Um, and I rather I really really liked her, um, like in the first X Men movie. Um, oh yeah, second one too. She was great. And I don't know if you ever saw the movie called Made by um, John Favreau, early two thousands, late nineties. Oh no, never heard of that one. I think it's early two thousands. Hmm. It came out like I don't know. I'm guessing two thousand three, two thousand four, and. You're familiar with Swingers, yes? Never seen it. <gasps> okay. So, post-Quentin Tarantino, you know, breaking things open with Pulp Fiction. And then there was, like, all these copycat movies. But some were very copycat. Some were, like, loosely copycat. But mm-hmm. but t- Pulp Fiction was like Nirvana was to, to rock music. Like, there was some things that copied Nirvana, but then there was other things that were just kind of inspired by the movement. Um, the change in, in the music at the time. So Pulp Fiction did the same thing for movies and there mm-hmm. was all these things that were like Pulp Fiction adjacent such as Clerks um, and Swingers and all these up and coming directors at the time after Tarantino and so Swingers, John Favreau obviously and what's his name um, Vince Vaughn these movies like Clerks and swingers when you saw them for the first time at the time they just seem like yeah man like this is the shit right here like <laughs> i think it's a it's the equivalent to those bbs uh indie movies that came out that i keep talking about from the late 60s early 70s like old hollywood was dying or dead at that point and so then all these indie things were coming out uh, on the scene with new directors and that's what this stuff was in the mid late 90s um and so when you saw swingers you're just like yeah this is a badass movie this is a movie of this generation uh that we're currently in anyway so that movie was groundbreaking swingers um but favreau didn't make anything else like that until made and so it's not as good as swingers or anything but when made came out i saw it and i was like oh i like how this is kind of takes me back to swingers even though it's not exactly the same it just has that vibe um and Famica jensen is in that and you know john forever oh, okay cool movie again and i maybe vince vaughn is back in that one too can't remember yeah i i was just looking it up he is yeah, yeah so it's not as good as swingers but it was just like oh it's nice to see him back in that wheelhouse again yeah, and, and that I've always been curious to see Swingers because I've heard it's got such a great reput- reputation. But Vince Vaughn is again. Oh, baby, you're you're so money you don't even know it. You're so money you don't even know it. That's the famous line. Vince Vaughn's another one of those uh, comedic actors that his persona I've never enjoyed, so I've just never never seek out his films. And if he's in something, I actively avoid it. So, <laughs> Swingers is peak Vince Vaughn. Peak. Vince Vaughn. Oof. <laughs> that sounds that sounds negative to me. So <laughs> that's him establishing that whole Vince Vaughnness, but he's at his youngest, like looking and everything in that particular movie. Yeah, I prefer his more serious roles, minus uh, uh, Psycho. But <laughs> I like that movie, as derided as it is. Oh wow! Oh wow! That's that's yeah. That's definitely a hot take. I like it, and I love the original. 
and I know all the criticisms of the new one, which I agree with, which is it's just a remake shot for shot for the most part. It doesn't really bring too much new to the table. That being said, I think this is how I think it works. If we mm-hmm. pretend like the original Psycho never existed and we'd never seen it and never known the story and then the new version just came out, I think it, it's, it, it holds up for the time that it was released. Again, like, you know, if we pretend that that was the initial release of Psycho. And I know that sounds convoluted as, like, uh, uh, as a condition, but for some reason I can frame it that way and I can appreciate it for that. That I think the yeah. fact that it's shot for shot and there's nothing really different. But that movie came out, like, I don't know, what, 97? To me, that's like a proof of concept that the original is so good. You know what I mean? Because if you made like a shot for shot Wizard of Oz and released it in 97, I don't know if that would be successful or not. Maybe it would. Maybe it wouldn't. I don't know. I mean, if, I mean, if you pretend like the original never existed, but then you remade it and released it in 97, it's just a weird experiment. Yeah, see, it's funny you say that because I, I kind of appreciate it for the opposite reason. And, and my, my reason's kind of bullshit because I don't know anything about Gus Van Sant. I don't know any of his career after or before that movie. But I always thought that maybe he was some sort of weird kind of uh, maybe auteur director. And he just thought it'd be a fascinating kind of meta experiment. Because, of course, that's all in the postmodern era. So I thought it was like a meta experiment to be like, can I recreate this movie down to like the absolute T? And what will it say about it by the fact that I'm recreating it? Now, I, I never thought that it really said anything, but... That's an interesting concept, and I'd love to know. Yeah, again, I don't know if that was really what his intent was, but... <laughs> that's just what I got. I'm not sure. I, I mean, I know he loved the original. I, I know that much, but... Maybe he thought, yeah, I want to bring it back to life, but I don't want to change it because it's so good anyway. I don't know. It's, I don't know. I'm trying to look at his other movies because... I feel like there's got to be some sort of postmodern reference in there, given the time, but but I'm not sure what, and I'm kind of a little anti-postmodernism anyway. So That's so weird. So <laughs> of his of his works, I've only seen um, Goodwill Hunting and uh, and Milk. Oh, still haven't seen either one and, of them. Uh, and Good and Goodwill Hunting was good at the time, but. When I watch it, when I try to watch it now, it feels so '97, and that's not necessarily a bad thing, but it 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 distracts me too much that it's so '97. Um, and it's, there's something annoying to me as well of seeing the younger um, <laughs> Damon, who I don't like to mention, even though I do it's... like him in some movies, but I just don't like him in general for no real reason. Oh, <laughs> and then uh, and then of course there's a young Ben Affleck. But what's funny for Ben Affleck, if you're an American of a certain age, and maybe it applies to some Canadians of a certain age, I don't know. But if you're of my age, there was this thing produced by American PBS in the middle, middle, no, late 80s. There was this educational program that was developed on public television in the United States. And it became a thing that a lot of people my age um uh they made it for pbs but they also made it to be used by schools if they would like to 
like use it as an educational yeah. series for science class. It, it was a drama series, but it, but it was educational at the same time. So a certain segment of people my age in America grew up with this in school. And it's weird because it's a low-budget PBS production, but it stars like a 13-year-old Ben Affleck or something. And uh-huh. so we all remember him for that role. Obviously, he was nobody at the time. Uh, and it was crazy when he became like a household name in later years because it's like, that's the kid from Voyage of the Mimi. That's the name of the PBS program. Like, what in the world? Like, Oh, what a terrible like, name. How in the world did that little kid from that little educational show turn into Ben Affleck? Like, holy shit. Talk about metamorphosis. Yeah, that's really funny. <laughs> Oh, but for for Goodwill Hunting, I've I've never seen it, but didn't those two write it, Matt Damon and Ben Affleck, or at least had some? I, I believe that's part of the story. Or... I can't remember if they won that Oscar for best screenplay or whatever. Can't remember. Yeah, it's like the only thing I know about that. And I've owned it on Blu-ray for like I don't know, like five or six years, and I've just never had any interest in putting then, it in. And then Milk was interesting. I, I was actually sent a free DVD copy from a very popular Blu-ray website. Because um, uh, Digital Bits has been one of the best websites since Blu-rays became a thing. Um, they existed before that, but I didn't know of them until Blu-rays were a thing. And uh, one day they tweeted, "Oh, we have extra. We have a because you know they get sent. Um, what do you call them? Promotional copies of things. Like screeners. Or... Screeners. Yeah. Screener. Yeah." And so they were like, they just tweeted, um, first two people or whoever tweets us back, we'll send you a copy of uh, Milk, that, you know, a promotional copy we have. And I just immediately tweeted back and they're like, well, congratulations. What's your address? <laughs> and I was like, okay. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> and I just got this, like, it, it's a standard looking copy. It doesn't look special or anything, but that's how I got Milk. <laughs> so... I watched it and I was like, okay, I mean, it's fine. It's one of those movies that perplexes me when it gets like Oscar notoriety. Um, What I mean is, I'm trying to think of another example, but these movies that catch Oscar buzz and it's because, oh, and they're biopics, um, but then you watch the movie and it just feels like such a standard movie. it's just because of the story, you know what I mean? Or the character or the real life person. An example okay, an example yeah. would be like the blind side. If you just watch that, you wouldn't think, Oh, this is Oscar Gold. No, you just think this is a regular biopic. Oh. Um, that's how I felt about milk. Um, like this feels like a regular biopic, but because of who it is and who he was and everything else. Like, yeah. I felt that way a lot about about a lot of the the musical biopics that got such buzz, like um, like the Ray Charles one, and the uh, um, oh yeah, Ray. What do you call it? Uh, Walk the line, um, and it's part of the reason why. Oh. It's part of the reason why I shy away from movies like 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 the Queen movie or Rocket Man, um, because I don't I don't like to watch biopics, um, especially musical ones. Because I think they're gonna be like they're gonna come across as really fake to me, like uh, like like Ray right. and uh, Walk the Line and all the like. You know. Yeah, another example of those uh, 
kind of Oscar bait biopics is uh, Selma. I thought that movie was super like white bread bland. <laughs> so I hear. Yet everyone was like loving it. So I hear. Although, wasn't there a significant cinematographer on Selma? Uh, I'm not sure if I'm missing Selma. Oh, I, movie. I don't remember. I'm looking it up right now. Oh, but I was going to say, uh, Sean Penn. However, The Doors, that's a good one. That's a good one. That that goes against what I've just been saying about by the numbers biopics. Um, the doors. Yeah, I've never is, seen that one. That one's better. That one is not run of the mill, stereotypical. That one is more artfully crafted, and no, that yeah. one is worth your time. Just saying. Was that Tony Scott? Uh, Oliver. Um, you like? Uh, not Tony Scott. Oliver. Um, Oliver Stone. Oliver. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. Yes, I mean, I'm saying yes to Selma. Yeah, there's there's another director whose catalog. Oh, oh, okay, tell sure. I'm almost there. I just gotta connect the other piece of trivia. Cause, but I was right that there was something significant about the cinematographer for Selma. I'm just confirming my connection now. Um, yep. Yeah, I was gonna say Oliver Stone. That's what I thought. That's what I thought. So. As I mentioned earlier, I was watching Arrival on 4K, and you know that movie's very Nolan-esque and uh, and uh, Kubrickian, like in, in cinematography and, and look, like being the way it's known for nowadays. So I was like, hmm, mm-hmm. who's he working with for this movie? And I look it up the other day, yesterday, or the, and I was like, Bradford Young. I was like, who the heck is this guy? I never heard of him. So then I looked at his works as a cinematographer. I saw Selma. I was like, okay. And then Solo, a Star Wars movie. And I was going to say to you, like, if you've seen Arrival as you have, would you ever think that the cinematographer for Arrival did Solo, a Star Wars movie? Wow. Wow, that's... (laughs) It's so... Yeah, well, I mean, to be fair, I, I feel like that was... I feel like that movie had two very distinct looks by the two different directors so maybe maybe you can't fully blame them so because i feel like the first like maybe 20 20 minutes to half an hour looks completely different than the rest true of the and then famously the guys who got kicked off of solo um fired by disney and then you know ron howard came in to fix the movie famously mm-hmm. the guys who got kicked off solo then went and made i'm going off of memory they made the animated spider-man movie yep yep uh, Lord which Miller. kicks ass I love that movie um, so. yeah and they made Lego movie and this show I used to like called Clone High so yeah they, they're quality I would have liked to see what they would have done I, I would too I would too but supposedly I guess they were getting too much outside of the Star Wars model whatever that means I mean I know what it means but but, <laughs> but I would like to see some, some more experimentation but, uh, oh, but I, I was going to quickly say, uh, yeah, with um, Oliver Stone, there's a filmmaker whose career I just do not know at all. I've only seen um, two of his films, and I didn't like either one of them, so I've just never checked out the rest of his stuff, even though I've heard great things. I don't know what you saw, but Oliver Stone, when he first broke on the scene, he was Tarantino before Tarantino. Um, I mean, I, their styles are different, but I'm just saying... He came on the scene like the way Tarantino did. Like, who is this young guy? This guy is the vision of the future. Like, this is the future of, of movies and movie making. 
and he and he he did pretty good with his first early releases. I I'd have to look at the, his whole breakdown, but like his first five or six movies, it's like oh this guy's Tarantino. I mean before Tarantino, and then he just lost it. I mean like his deal with the devil expired oh, wow. or something, and <laughs> and then his movies just they just they fell off. They fell off, and and it just like it just seems like wow what happened? Like I don't know. Um, it's kind of like what M Night did. Except M Night only had one and a half good movies, and then he started falling down. Um, <laughs> Oliver Stone had like a good six movie run, and then he started falling down, <laughs> or getting lost, or like he lost his way or his vision. I don't know what happened. He lost his mojo. Oh, that's too bad. Yeah, I've only seen um, Platoon, which I never cared for, and I've never cared for. Uh, oh, what was that Tarantino one that he did? Um, where's my disc up here? Um, uh, romance, um, uh, bad oh, romance. Uh, natural born. Uh, oh no, that one. Natural born killers. Right. Yeah, yeah. I never, never cared for that movie. I, there's things I like about You're it. The wrong age, wrong time. I'm sure it worked in the '90s, but so much of that stuff has aged so poorly. The '90s is one of those weird eras where so much of the stuff that was great then has aged so badly. It is one of those weird eras, but dude. You were the wrong age, and you saw that movie at the wrong time. Uh, uh, that one you just mentioned, Natural Born Killers, because that was like, oh fuck, like um, that that thing you're into that we're gonna talk about, surrealism. Mm-hmm. That was considered cutting edge, modern surrealism at the time when it came out. Oh, at least for the mainstream. I mean, I feel like that's so hollow, but. <laughs> Maybe for the mainstream of the time, it was cutting edge, but uh, not for the real. I mean, I mean, it it was like, dude, like, a like a mainstream director dared to do that and like release that. That was that was considered like holy shit. Like mainstream directors don't don't take chances like that. Yeah, that's that's it. It is. I guess that is fair considering it's yeah Oliver Stone and definitely a big risk, but oof. <laughs> it was one of those movies like what are some famous examples from back in the day of movies that seem benign now but they like shocked audiences at the time when they came out no oh, oh, hmm. there's a lot of examples yeah there sure is plenty of them but yeah i can't think of them right now well natural born kills was one of those movies that if you saw it when it came out you were just like oh my god like this feels like pushing r like as far as it could possibly go uh, that that's how it felt like it was shocking it was a shocking movie at the time it was kind of shocking the way Kill Bill was shocking for different reasons um, but, but but that was more likable mainstream in a weird way uh, Kill Bill um, hmm. yeah looking at it 94 considering what the MPA was all through like from 87 on till around that time yeah it, it makes sense why it'd be so shocking it was, yeah, it, were... was it was so pushing the boundary of taste and limits but also considered pushing the boundary of art and creativity and also it was considered like this huge the movie itself is considered this huge critique on um um commercialism and like it, he was mm-hmm. making fun of like a bunch of things at the time um he was making fun of super obviously though. 
Right, but it was like considered like holy shit, like this guy is <laughs> is is not you know holding holding back now. What do you call it? Pulling his punches, like he's going all in. Yeah, he literally uh, he's literally got a shot of Robert Tanny Jr. as the devil mm-hmm. in in several shots. <laughs> I mean, you couldn't get more obvious than that. So I'm just saying, it was it was so like brazen and groundbreaking at the time, shocking, like oh shit, like but. <laughs> But do you still like it now? I do. I'm not like in complete awe of it, like the way I was. But I remember me and my friend just watched it on a whim, opening night. And at the time, we were just fucking blown away. Like it felt like we were watching 2001 for the first time. Um, just like, what the fuck was mm. that? Like, like oh, because when there was when he had like the uh, when. When she was like thinking about her past, uh, Mallory or whatever her name was, and uh, she was thinking yeah. about her past, and it turned into a sitcom, and and uh, Downey Jr. Not that one, the other one, um, or what's his name? Shit, what's the comedian's name? Yeah, he's got a really funny name. Um, how can I forget his fucking name? Something dangerous. Yeah, Ronnie Dangerfield. There you go. Thank you. Roddy Danger. Holy <laughs> shit! When that whole sequence happened, like it felt like we were on fucking drugs. Like it felt like we were on LSD. Mm. Like it was like, what the fuck is happening? This is crazy. And like the first massacre in the diner, like holy shit, what is happening? Like it was like such a roller coaster ride. Um, and that sound for the movie was really popular. Yeah, it does have a good soundtrack. I will say all that sitcom stuff. That's super transgressive and cool and complete switch for Rodney Dangerfield's kind of image. So I love all that stuff. It's just the rest of the movie, especially when it gets to the end and it completely devolves into kind of bullshit pop surrealism. That's when I just completely lose interest. <laughs> I, I remember I'd get lost. Like, the prison stuff just seemed to... Like, all right, I'm good. Yeah, and he likes... It's one of those movies that I like the first half and I don't ever want to watch the second half. Yeah. And he like tries to be Wes Anderson before Wes Anderson with constantly like changing the the kind of um I was going to say I don't feel like it's actually aspect ratio. I feel like it's just the quality of the film that he changes constantly. The grade, I'm mean, not the grain the grade uh in the processing. Grade, yes. Um yeah, you're right. And for like no real reason to But again, that was that was very artful at the time. <laughs> You make fun of it like it's silly now. It's no, it, this was legit at the time. But that that's kind of the funny thing with a lot of '90s, really like kind of, um, you know, what's the word? Like they all thought they were so like ahead of the curve, and it was like all this stuff's been done before and better twenty years ago, and you guys are just catching up now, and you think you're so cool for it. And you well, guys really aren't. That's no. See, you're getting too hipster. You're getting too hipster for a second. Because it's the exact same thing George Lucas did in his way with Star Wars. Repurposing things that some people knew, some people didn't know, but repackaging it and then delivering it. And people go, holy shit, this is something new, even though it's made of existing materials. Um, and it's what Tarantino's always done, but he just does it so good. He's just like such a good mixologist. He's one of the few that can get away with it because Tarantino 
even though he does carry the we're so cool vibe, I feel like he just actually fulfills it. So many of those other ones, like back in the 70s when they would do it, they didn't have that quality of we're so cool, we're so on the cutting edge. That's that's why I hate postmodernism, because it made these people so far up their ass and they thought they were so great. And it was like, really, you guys, I mean, now that we have access to all this stuff that you were pulling from, you really don't look that cool anymore. So it just it does not date well. But like I said, Oliver Stone was Tarantino for six years. And then as soon as Pulp Fiction came out, the baton passed, and then that was that. <laughs> mm -hmm. That's fair. I, I, I'm still curious to check out some of the, his other stuff, like The Doors. JFK, I've always wanted to see. Um, not sure what else he's made, but... <laughs> and again, if you put Platoon into context of when it came out, all those significant Vietnam movies, of course there's Apocalypse Now, but then... When you got to Platoon and Full Metal Jacket, and I'd even say Hamburger Hill, they all came out about the same time as each other. Those movies were all, they all were like, again, the cutting edge of redefining war films. Um, all of them together. So Yeah, I was going to say I would hold up, I would hold up um, Hamburger Hill a lot higher than Platoon, that's for sure. Wow. Although I feel like that's a very un unpopular take. I feel like most people call that like the weakest one of those and, three. But... And to me... Um, what's that one with Andrew Garfield? Um, war movie. Oh, Hacksaw, Hack, Hacksaw Ridge. Yeah, Hacksaw Ridge. For whatever reason, Sean loves that movie. He thinks it's an amazing war movie, and to me, it is just—it's fine. But to me, it's so derivative, in the worst way, of those movies I just named from the eighties. Like, it just—it just feels like it's. A newer version of those '80s war movies, but it's it's like, but it brings nothing new to the table, like, and what it does bring is it brings horrible digital effects to the table, which I don't like. Um, <laughs> uh, and 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 then we 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 were soldiers, which I think Sean also likes, is an, another mm -hmm. okay movie to me, but um, it, it it's like a more milk toast version of uh, Hacksaw Ridge, like. I'm just like, okay, I'm not seeing anything new. And then what disappointed me about We Were Soldiers, I had had like a, there was some speaker at my school, at college, and they and they told that story in a lecture. They told that story about that true life event and We Were Soldiers. And it was like an amazing story like to be to hear. And so I heard that movie mm -hmm. was based upon that event. I was like, oh, this is gonna be so cool. And it just didn't do justice to the way I heard the story orally told, like the movie didn't seem to like capture how cool how cool I thought um, the true story was. Now a movie that did kind of capture the true story, I think I also had a different lecture from somebody who wrote Black Hawk Down, which of course is another real event. And I heard that story told, and I would say that for the most part the movie lived up. So even though the movie is a little bit Hollywoody, it's still grounded in realism enough. I think that, that it holds yeah, up. I've never seen that one either. Hmm. That's a good one. Um, that's the best war movie of its time, by far, hmm. in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah, I did see We Were Soldiers, and I remember liking that many years ago. But I haven't seen it since probably the two thousands. So it's been a long time. It was okay. I was just ever since he did Braveheart. 
I always wanted um, Mel Gibson to do another Braveheart. I mean, even if it's in a different setting or whatever. Um, and just none of those movies ever lived up to my hopes. The Patriot and and uh, We Were Soldiers and Hacksaw Ridge. I just like, just give me another Braveheart. But nope, I guess it's not possible. Did you ever see uh, Apocalypto? Oh, now that's a movie I love. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yes. <laughs> and yes. And yeah, yes, that's the real successor to Braveheart, <laughs> and, in a way. And yes, I've seen YouTube videos that destroy the history. Like, oh, yeah, of course. <laughs> like, the, the, like the history is not, it's made up, or whatever Mel Gibson or whoever did it, what they did was they <laughs> didn't do their research. Well, what they did was they took a thousand years of Mayan history and they picked and mm. chose the bits they wanted and then reassembled it into like a made up history. You know what I mean? It's like a collage of history. Mm. So they took things that were like 980 and mixed it with things that were 1380. You know what I'm saying? So to a historian, I, someone on on uh, youtube was explaining like the fact that the mayans had this thing in the movie apocalypto it'd be the equivalent he said it was the equivalent of king henry the eighth having a cell phone or something that's the way somebody on youtube describes something <laughs> in apocalypto like that's funny <laughs> but i don't care Man, i i tell you <laughs> when i saw that thing when i was 13 on hbo that was like an art film of violence. I'd never seen anything like that. And it just, I I was absolutely amazed by it. I do not care that they filmed the history. It, it, I fucking love that movie. Yeah, absolutely exhilarating. Beautifully shot. Everything about that movie is just excellent, I think. But but it's been a couple of years. Maybe I'd, no, I, I still think it's great. But... Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> I fucking love it. For some reason, BBC America would show that movie like four times a month. Um, and I would just catch it randomly, <laughs> and I'd be. That's one of those movies I can catch it at any point in the movie, and I'm in. I'm in. I can watch it from the beginning. I can watch it from the end. I'm fucking in. It's such a damn good movie. Yeah, and because my parents forced us to watch The Passion of the Christ, oh god, I had known that Mel Gibson like had a career outside of Lethal Weapon, and so I was like, wow, like this guy. I mean, he's one of the top directors working today. And so when his whole scandal thing and he stopped working, I was like, oh, like, we lost this great artist. I mean, sure, he was a fuck-up, but, like, he's one of the great directors working today. So, and I haven't seen anything he's done since he came back. <laughs> so I probably should catch up. <laughs> oh, the first thing the first thing he did, like, when he was coming back, I think it was when he was coming back from Scandals, was that movie, um, Payback? I think that's the movie that might have been his first movie when he was coming back. I don't even know that one. It's it's not new. I mean, it was late '90s, something. Oh, oh, I just mean as a director, not as not as an actor. Did he not direct Payback? I don't know. I honestly don't know. I, I think he's only directed Hacksaw Ridge, and I think he has a, like a sequel to Passion of the Christ or something. I don't know anything about a sequel to Passion of the Christ. Um, I remember reading something about that, but <laughs> I was like, oh dear, going back to the well. <laughs> Try to see. So it's from 99. Oh, it was not directed by. Um, it was not directed by Gibson, but I want to say that was the first movie of his comeback from 
and it, it, it's it's just it's a really good movie for what it is. Um, and there's been many movies that were, and I'm sure Payback was inspired by things before it. But there's been many movies that have come out post Payback that are the same exact pre- premise. Tons and tons of movies. Um, Interesting. Especially like Liam Neeson stuff and uh, John Wick. Um, like, Payback, like, was the first I saw, at least in my movie watching history, that was that. Like, why'd you have to. Like, why did you have to keep coming back for more? Well, I guess that was probably done in Westerns to Death before that, you know. But, like, I'm just trying to do my thing. Could you just leave me alone? Why do you got to pull me back into the life and, and push me so hard? And that's what Payback's about. That's yeah, a good avenue for story. 